<clears throat> mic check one two one two. Mic check one two one two. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Confronting the Madness, a podcast exploring the psychological issues of our time. My name is Mark Corthius. I am the host of Confronting the Madness. I'm privileged to call my next guest, first and foremost, my friend. Dr. Vincent Agapong stands, in my eyes, as one of the most generous, kind, supportive, thoughtful, and empathetic men I know. I went through a personally uniquely challenging period in 2020, and Vincent was the man who called me week in and week out just to check in. And as a professional, I haven't come across a more hardworking, innovative, and dynamic individual. It's no wonder he has been sought after by organizations around the world. Vincent is the newly minted professor of psychiatry and global mental health and the head of the Department of Psychiatry at Dalhousie University. He is also the chief of psychiatry for the Central Zone at the Nova Scotia Health Authority. I think when the Nova Scotia Health Authority and Dalhousie University found out Vincent was coming, they figured they'd just throw every single title possible at him. That was difficult to read. Vincent's research primarily focuses on designing and evaluating health innovations that expand access to quality mental health care at the provincial, national, and international levels. One of those health innovations that I was privileged to be a part of are his various supportive text message interventions, which have had over 80,000 subscribers. Vincent and I are both founding board members of the Global Psychological eHealth Foundation, an organization focused on global mental health research, advocacy, and consulting. The Global Psychological eHealth Foundation has a specific interest in developing, implementing, and evaluating impacts of evidence-based, easily scalable, and cost-effective e-mental health tools geared at closing the treatment gap for communities in low, middle, and high-income countries. And before I introduce Dr. Vincent, I would be remiss if I didn't mention today is World Mental Health Day. And I'm going to go off script a little bit and just check out hashtag World Mental Health Day on Twitter, share a few tweets with you from some distinguished individuals. Oh, there's one. Tim Cook from Apple says, taking care of your mental health is critically important. Thank you, Tim, for that tip. This hashtag World Mental Health Day is a reminder to us all about the importance of prioritizing our emotional well-being and finding meaningful ways to unwind and refuel. Jill Biden, Mental Health Matters. Living through a pandemic for nearly two years has taken a toll on everybody in some way, that is for sure. Remember, support is available and reaching out is a sign of strength. Agreed. Learn more about the resources in your area at mentalhealth.gov. That's a picture of my daughter. I went the wrong way. Jagmit Singh, leader of the federal NDP, says, On World Mental Health Day, let us be guided by compassion and our connection to one another. Because together we can eliminate the stigma associated with mental health and remove barriers that prevent people from getting the support they need and deserve. I like that, Jagmeet. Jagmeet. Dashboard Confessional. That was a band that I used to listen to when I broke up with my girlfriend and cried. Screaming Infidelities, I think, was the song. I'll go into that in more detail during a later podcast. They say, I'm grateful to live in the era of the destigmatization of mental health. I feel no shame about addressing those needs, and neither should anyone else. Well said, my friend. And lastly, the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau. It's okay not to be okay. And it's okay to feel anxious, stressed, or overwhelmed. But you are not alone. Know that. And know that we'll, be, that we'll keep working today and every day 
to make sure you can get the care and support you need. Hashtag World Mental Health Day. Well, it doesn't feel okay to feel anxious, stressed, and overwhelmed, but sometimes you can't help it. And now I bring to you a lovelier man there is not, my friend and yours, Dr. Vincent Aguipon. Okay, let me start that again. <laughs> Dr. Vincent Agupong, thank you so much for joining me on Confronting the Madness. You are the newly minted professor and head of the Department of Psychiatry at Dalhousie University and also the clinical chief, Nova Scotia Health Authority uh, for the Central Zone. How has the first couple of weeks been, my friend? Oh, thank you very much, Mark Cotillos. Uh, first couple of weeks going really well. Lots of uh, support, lots of things to learn, and uh, I think the uh, the support is, is is really more than the challenges. So it's all good. Well, that's it's always good when the support is, is more than the challenges. Um, you and I are, I would consider friends, and we've worked together in Edmonton uh, for a number of years, and so I've looked forward to chatting with you for a while now and what I well, what I was hoping we could do is just start from from the beginning for you and and how you came to the role you're in now um just maybe give the listeners a little bit of background on where you were born um how you were raised and what that was like in Ghana yeah so I mean uh, I was born in Ghana uh the eastern regional capital, a city called Koforidua. So I'm, I'm the only son of uh, my uh, mom. I've got four sisters and we all grew up in Koforidua. My dad, at the time I was born, was a teacher. My mom was a petty trader. Uh, subsequently, my dad left the teaching profession, uh, went into farming. Uh, somewhere in the eastern region. So we grew up very much on the farm uh, during uh, vacation from uh, primary and, and, and secondary school, went to support our, our, our father's uh, farm mm-hmm. and uh, subsequently completed high school at Pope John's secondary school and uh, went to Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology to undertake the my undergraduate medical education program. So growing up in that environment, when was the first time you had, you had heard of the, the word psychiatry or the notion of being a psychiatrist or, or mental health for that matter? Well, growing up, my dad had always wanted me to become a physician, mm. but I'm sure never a psychiatrist. <laughs> psychiatry was not really something that... I was very familiar with. And even in medical school, we had only one uh, psychiatrist. Uh, He trained in Germany and he taught the curriculum, but really people did not take psychiatry very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. Uh, Coupled with that, you see uh, the infrastructure for mental health in Ghana was not one that would cause somebody to really want to specialize and train because you would have to be working in that poor infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So really psychiatry was not one of the things I had considered uh, specializing in uh, when I completed my uh, medical degree. The thinking was more to go into public health. And so right after medical school, I did apply to a couple of schools in, in the U.S. with a view to do a master's and, and hopefully a Ph.D. in public health. Mm. But as faith, faith would have it, I, I ended up in psychiatry. And I'll get back into public health, then it will be public mental health. Mm. So I made up my mind at that stage to finish my 
training in psychiatry, which I, I did in the shortest uh, possible time. And <laughs> tell, tell me, were you not doing your PhD at the same time? No. So I, I actually completed the Royal College Psychiatry Training Program uh, in 2008. So that had nothing to do with uh, a PhD, but I was very much involved in doing a lot of academic work. So once you are finished with your basic training, which is like equivalent to the fellowship year, then you have an opportunity to do in the UK and Ireland what you call a, a higher specialist training. So there are very few spots that are dedicated to research higher specialist training. So they call them academic senior specialist uh, training programs. Mm. So I was very fortunate to apply to that route rather than the clinical route and was offered one or three spots that were available at the time. And I happened to be the very first senior registrar or higher specialist trainee to be sent to St. Patrick's University Hospital, which is the biggest independent mental health institution in Europe, mm, the oldest wow. as well. Yeah. So I did my higher specialist training there, met Professor Declan McLaughlin. He's, he's been my mentor and, and, uh, and somebody who's been a great influence in my life till this very time. And, and he suggested to me that he was willing to fund me to do a doctoral program in, in psychiatry. And that was within the first month of me being, you know, assigned to St. Patrick's University Hospital. So he suggested that I come up with a research topic. When I took over that post, I went on holiday with my family who were in Sweden at the time when I read his email. And it basically said, uh, you will have to submit your research uh, proposal within the next four weeks. And I've not even thought about, I didn't even, I've done some research, but I didn't know what a doctoral research, you know, proposal would, would look like. Right. So in the midst of being on a vacation, in the midst of reviewing that email, thinking about what I'm going to go and present to him when I, I return, I got a text message, you know, just from my sister in the UK. And it was one of these very random text messages. Sometimes people motivational, they text mm -hmm. you, you know, stuff that they've received from other people. So, so that's when the idea clicked. And I said, ah, probably, you know, if people are anxious, depressed, uncertain, sending them text messages, which are motivational, <laughs> would be a good idea. And, and that's where the whole text for various initiatives mm -hmm. that really originated from there. That, that's where the seed was planted. What year was that? Because what year was that in? 2000? So it was in 2009. So 2009. I finished my basic training in 2008, and then I started at St. Patrick's in 2009. Yeah, so that was that was still, it was an early days with, with regards to text messaging, but it was earlier days with respect to digital mental health. And so you're very much on the front end of the curve thinking about that. And yeah. so you did your PhD focusing on what was a specific text messaging study that you, you did for your PhD? So we did the randomized control trial looking at uh, the effectiveness of supported text messaging for patients with depression and comorbid alcohol use disorder. So we looked at primarily two variables. We looked at the impact of the text messages on the depression scores, as well as we looked at the impact of the text messaging on the ability to maintain abstinence after they have been discharged from hospitals. We looked at the cumulative abstinence duration, 90 days after they have been discharged from hospital. And... Um... What were the results of that study? Well, so we found out that uh, patients who receive the supported text messages were significantly more likely to have a reduction in their depression scores. In fact, it was about 50% greater reduction in their depression scores compared to those who did not receive the daily supported text messages. In terms of the cumulative abstinence duration, we found there was a trend. It, 
couldn't achieve significance, but I mean, the sample size was not very big. We had, I think, about 80 patients, you know, recruited into the study, but there was a trend towards significance in terms of, I think, if I recall correctly, those who received this daily support text messages were about 88 out of 90 days abstinent from alcohol, whereas those who did not receive the support text messages were around 70-something days abstinent from alcohol. Also, the units of alcohol per drinking day. So even for the days that they drank, it was much smaller in the supported text message group compared to the, the, the treatment as usual group. Mm -hmm. so, so that's what set you on your path for looking at uh, digital mental health solutions. At that time, were you thinking about scale and spread globally? And were you thinking about uh, your home country of Ghana and, and what the infrastructure for mental health was like or how you could start to affect change from where you were in Ireland? Or, or when did that come? So, so that came in in 2008 after I finished my basic training. I went to Ghana and one of the thinking was to explore the possibility of returning home to go mm. and add to the numbers in terms of psychiatrists. There were four psychiatrists in Ghana at the time for a population of 24 million uh, people. You know, wow. so sometimes when you hear people saying we don't have enough psychiatrists, then I always remember what the situation was in Ghana in 2008. Yeah. Well, I looked up the number of psychiatrists in Canada, population 38 million, 4,770 yeah, and that's still not enough. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. We complain all the time in Canada about not having enough psychiatrists. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and in Ghana, there were four for 25 million four, people. For 24 million people, yeah. Yeah. So at, at the time, I, I went to Ghana. I spoke to the chief psychiatrist. I interacted with the other psychiatrists, interacted with, you know, uh, some patients who had come in to, to receive services, and also with the staff at, at the uh, psychiatric hospital in Accra. Mm -hmm. There are three psychiatric hospitals, all of which are on the southern coast of Ghana. There's uh, a small unit in the teaching hospital in Konfanochi Teaching Hospital, which is affiliated with the Kwame Nkrumah University of, of Science and Technology. So the vast, there are vast areas of Ghana with no access at all at the time to uh, psychiatry. So I just asked myself, if I return home, uh, I add to the numbers, it's not still going to solve their problems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, my family at the time, my wife was not very keen on, on, on just coming home just yet. So I just had to decide how I could still be of use to my country in terms of helping to improve access to psychiatric services. So I came out with the idea of uh, designing a program to stimulate medical students in Ghana in the field of psychiatry and improve uh, their willingness you know, to, to pursue further uh, training. Mm -hmm. So as a very first step in 2008, I applied and was offered an adjunct uh, appointment at the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology I went annually to teach the medical curriculum. The one who taught me at the time had just retired after 30 yeah. years of being a psychiatrist in, in, the, in the institution. So they did not really have any psychiatrist teaching the, the curriculum. So five years, I was delivering the bulk of the curriculum to medical students at no cost to the university. I wasn't paid. I paid my own flight. Wow. They only gave me uh, accommodation when I was there, which, which was very much appreciated. But it was all part of the contribution to my country in terms of trying to stimulate, you know, medical students' interest in psychiatry. I also designed a program, an intermedical students' medical speaking competition. I secured sponsorship from two hospitals, St. Patrick's University Hospital and St. John of God, hospital in, in Dublin, and they were willing to fund annually the hosting of that competition and then offer 
the winners of the competition and they are runner, runners-up. So there were four medical schools at the time. Each of them will select two students for the competition to represent their institution. And uh, there'll be a winner and then there'll be a runner-up. So the winners went to St. Patrick's University Hospital for four weeks to undertake electives in psychiatry. Mm. And the runners up went into uh, St. John of God Hospital for four weeks, all paid by those institutions. Mm. So, so far, we've had about 29 Ghanaian medical students who've gone through the program. We also uh, thought it to be useful just not to focus on, on psychiatrists because you never have enough psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. So at the time, there was a consultant in the UK called Mark Roberts, who was also very much interested in helping Ghana. So he came up with a concept of, you know, using less trained workers mm-hmm. to actually support Ghana's mental health delivery system. So I thought it would be a, a useful idea to me for me to get more involved in, in that kind of work. So I registered for a PhD in global mental health at the Center for Global Mental Health at Trinity College to undertake another doctoral program, which is focused on mental, public mental health. So that was more or less bringing me back to my passion of public yeah. health, but, but this time in the field of, of, of mental health. So my research was focused again on Ghana, looking at expanding access to mental health services, improving quality of mental health care using less highly trained, skilled, you know, personnel. So I examined the concept of tax shifting in in Ghana, you know, whether you can be able to use, you can be able to use, they call them the community mental health offices. You know, you can train them in basic prescribing, you know, deploy them to the districts so that they recognize and treat common mental ailments and and have the ability to refer people to a psychiatric hospital to receive specialized services if if necessary. And and how do people in Ghana generally think of mental health as compared to, for example, Canada? Well, in Canada, for example, you know, depression will be uh, the, uh, the bread and butter of psychiatry, you know. Globally, depression will be the biggest burden in terms of, mm-hmm. of, of mental health. But in Ghana, uh, people who are depressed do not go to see a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they go to see their pastors or, you know, they talk to their friends and family. Uh, people believe that depression is because something is not going well for you. Maybe your husband has left you or... You don't have money to, mm-hmm. to pay your children's school fees. So, so there's no connection between depression <laughs> and psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. You know, I can assure you, yeah, m- many of the people that I've, I've seen as patients since, I, since I've been in Ireland and the UK, would, I would never see if, if, mm-hmm. if I were mm-hmm. working in Ghana. So in Ghana, psychiatrists is associated with Schizophrenia, when somebody is completely and totally lost their mind. I see, yeah. You and know, that, so yeah. It, it, it also kind of feeds into the stigma of why people, medical students at the time, were not very much interested in, in, in training in the field, you know, because uh, usually uh, people would say that the psychiatrists usually behave like their patients. <laughs> <laughs> I remember in 2009, I, 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 I managed to get some, you know, uh, some materials that would be useful for the psychiatric hospital. So one of my classmates, actually a consultant, ENT surgeon, you know, so she came to meet me and I said, oh, we're going to make the presentation, but the news men around, you know, they were going to film, you know, and report on, on TV and all that. And she didn't want to go with me because oh, really? <laughs> you, you're, you were a psychiatrist. You were like, you're the, you're the black sheep of the medical profession. Yeah, absolutely. She said, yeah. no, no, no. I wouldn't want to be seen on TV with anything <laughs> mental. <laughs> oh, 
wow. Has that changed uh, much today? It's, or is... changed, it's changed considerably. It's really changed a lot. I mean, we we campaigned very actively, and that's another thing that I was involved in was, you know, campaigning very actively for a new mental health bill in Ghana to be passed. The bill that existed dated back to 1945. Really, it was the colonial days, you know, where all sorts of names were were used to refer to people with mental health, you know, problems. And a new bill was drafted. It took about 10 years of wow. active campaign, you know, for it to be passed. And it, it was eventually passed, I think, sometime in 2015 or so. Yeah. Oh, wow. That was to change the names of disorders or... It was actually to set up legislation that would govern, you know, all mental health uh, facilities and treatments. You you won't believe it, but I mean, once the bill was passed, I think in 2015 or 2012, they needed to actually uh, do what they call it, a legislative instrument which will operationalize the law that had been passed. And that legislative instrument, I don't even, I think it was only uh, enacted last year or so. So it took another few years, six or five years, even after the law had been passed. So so one of the important things that that uh, bill, that law was supposed to do was to provide funding enshrining law for the bill uh, for, for mental health, so that mm-hmm. mental health doesn't become the orphan that's always underfunded. And the reason why the legislative instrument also took so long, you know, to be passed was because there was no agreement, you know, from the government and from parliament as to what had been inserted, because, you know, it had been inserted that there's going to be a special levy, you know, which will be like a value added task, right? Task, uh, tax, tax, yeah, yeah, which would be imposed on goods and services to fund mental health, mm-hmm. and it always depends on the government that's in power. You know, the government that took over now in 2016, for example, abolished things they refer to as nuisance taxes. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, there was no appetite to actually introduce another nuisance tax. <laughs> <laughs> Especially, especially around mental health, perhaps. Absolutely, yeah. So still mental health, the funding has improved, but it's still very much, you know, like 1.5% of the total health budget. It's, it's not anything right, yeah. about. Yeah, I was doing some research. Like Canada is like, what, 7 to 9% or something like that. Yeah. Um, I was looking at the rates of suicide between Canadians and Ghanaians, 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 and um, they're actually quite comparable. And I had a question for you about how you think about a first world country like Canada and, and Ghana would be, you know, they're, they're one of the wealthier countries in Africa. Um, But still by comparison in terms of health infrastructure, excuse me, and mental health budget and access to care. Why, why do you think it is that those numbers are similar between Canadians and Ghanaians? Well, uh, for start, I, I don't know if you can trust the numbers that have been reported. I see. <laughs> in Ghana, because data collection is not the same as it is here. If somebody right. commits suicide really right. you know, in a village, nobody really counts that. Uh, statistic they, they True. just go True. and bury them so True. i don't know if it probably would even be more people right than than, than i reported well let, let me reframe the question then because what i was trying to get at i guess is do you think that some sometimes because a country is so privileged that and so safe and comfortable that 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 that's actually a, a detriment to their mental health versus a country where you as an individual have to spend your time 
working much harder to get something as simple as, as water. And I'm not saying that's the case in Ghana. But yeah, I mean, uh, definitely people's experiences, uh, childhood experiences, experiences growing up built into their level of resilience. So, I mean, you know, something that would cause somebody who's been born in Ghana uh, to become depressed must be really, really very, very big. Right, yes. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> Versus in Canada. You're, you're, yes, because yes. you are in survival mode from the, the time you are born, you know, going to school, you have to kind of uh, struggle for almost everything, you know. So uh, that certainly plays a part in terms of, uh, you know, where people would have to be at to say they're going to kill themselves. I'll give you an example. One of my classmates got into some really very serious issues in the UK and was actually uh, suspended from a practice, General Medical Council in the UK. And, and for four years, he was, you know, kind of just driving a taxi or, or mm -hmm. something like that, you know, to survive. So along the lines, we, we had news that, you know, some black guy had, had committed suicide. He's a doctor. So I immediately called him. He wasn't picking his phone. You know, because it, the description was like, oh, I hope he's not my, my friend, right. you know, my classmate. And uh, he wasn't picking. And later on, he called me back and he said, look, I know why you are calling me. You heard about this. <laughs> <laughs> and you think it's me. I love myself. <laughs> <laughs> but but, that's, but that, that same story in Canada, you can see where a more privileged individual whose parents were doctors or psychiatrists and they were born to be a psychiatrist and then they had that same situation happen to them uh, would respond to it in a much different way. And so I, I've, I've thought about that a lot more in terms of mental health and mental illness, ill health around the notion of uh, survival and comfort versus suffering and how, you know, the pendulum maybe has swung, not for everyone, of course, but for Canadians that, you know, the the level of resilience or um, ability to withstand trials and tribulations is, is becoming less and less, particularly with the rise in social media. Um, you know, it seems like you're at, in, at threat of something 24-7 when really it's all in your head for the most part. Yeah. So if we could, let's flash forward to the Dr. Agupong lands in Alberta part of your story and the rapid evolution of your text messaging program. You make the trek to Fort McMurray and, and for those that are listening from Fort McMurray, I've been there. It's beautiful, but compared to Edmonton, Dub, Dublin, Ireland, and Calgary. I'm just saying, you know, um, it's it's a different it's a different lifestyle. So you got there. So you have your academic position, and are you still interested at that point in text messaging, digital mental health as ways to scale and spread access to care? Yeah. So I mean, when I arrived at Fort McMurray, uh, you know, I realized that the wait time for access to counseling was about 14 weeks. Mm -hmm. Within the first week of arriving, I had about 40 referrals sent to my office from wow. family doctors. Wow. So I knew that I was in some really <laughs> different environment and, you know, uh, business as usual was not going to work. Right. I mean, I was just going to add to the numbers. So I needed to change my practice work more collaboratively with family doctors, mm -hmm. do more consultations for them rather than hold on to patients. And I also thought it would be useful to try and use the research that I've done to translate into support, psychological support for those who are on the wait list mm -hmm. to receive counseling. Right. So you, you uh, developed a text messaging program that provided one-way messages to those individuals that were on wait lists to see a mental health 
therapist or psychiatrist. And so this was pre Fort McMurray wildfires. Cause I want to talk about that as well. So that was pre Fort McMurray wildfires. So, so what I did initially was, you know, kind of approach the operational director there at the time, you know, uh, the I don't health services. About the health services, the yeah. interest in actually getting support, you know, to work with the, uh, the therapist team was not very much there on the part of, of the director who was, was there at the time. But then I was fortunate to secure some HS quality improvement grants. Mm. And that became the catalyst in terms of uh, we were able to complete two other randomized control trials to validate the study that we did in Ireland in the local context, you know, because if, if you have results from Dublin, which shows that this is a good or effective intervention, it might have worked in that context. I mean, right. it's important to know we did a study with inpatients. It wasn't, you know, outpatients who, who were seeking services. So we thought we'd validate and therefore, we, we recruited patients from outpatient clinics, those who had been referred, meeting the criteria for major depressive disorder, put them into two groups, and we got the same results in terms of improvement in their depressive symptom scores that we, we, we got in Dublin. Right. right. So on foot of the success of that trial, we used the remaining part of the money to launch the Text for Mood program. And primarily, that was to support those who were seeking services but were to go on a very long wait list. Mm -hmm. It was also to provide support for those who live very long distances away from the health center and therefore geographical barriers mm -hmm. became an issue for them to be able to access you know, the counseling services. You know, at that time, there was not all these Zoom counseling, right. yeah. you know, not possible and all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Virtual health was seemed to be an insurmountable idea for mental health care for some reason until uh, obviously COVID-19. Um, yeah, I think so, people were more concerned about security and privacy right. and safety and you know, yes. who's listening in and all that. <laughs> yes, yes. But I think we re found out it wasn't that as big of a deal as, as people made it out to be, but, but so, so you've developed this. Um, so you've replicated the study from Ireland without patients. Ireland was inpatient study. Is that, is that what you were saying? Yeah. So Ireland were patients who are about to be discharged from hospital. I see. Yeah. And, and, and the FODMAC study were the outpatients, people who have been referred for depression. Right. Right. And so the Fort McMurray, fires what did they happened in 2017 or what year was 2016 May 2016 May 2016 and so at, at that point what did where was the texts for mood program at in terms of it being implemented and what did you do from there so so we just launched the text for mood program on the 16th of January 2016 okay yeah. So it was just a few months before the Fort McMurray wildfires. So with the benefit of the Text for Mood program, our ability to be able to use the program, not just in messages, but also to send links and resources to people, we actually deployed the program and made resources available to those who were going through the wildfires in the heat of of, of, of the evacuation. Mm -hmm. We were able to embed, you know, uh, simple website links that spoke about how people should be able to cope or what people should be able to do, you know, to cope or to, to protect their psychological well-being. So these were very useful resources that were already available that we just embedded in, 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 in a text message form right. for subscribers. Right. And then you... Um... That was you, you studied that and over a year I think you had something like twenty thousand subscribers to that program. Yes. Yeah. And what were the what were the key findings? Uh 
So, I mean, the main finding from that survey of subscribers was about 83% of those who received the daily messages reported that the program contributed to improving their psychological well-being. About 85% reported they felt connected to a support system mm -hmm. from receiving the daily supported text messages. You know, similarly, over 80% of those who uh, subscribed and completed the survey reported that the messages actually helped them to deal with anxiety and depression and stress. And in terms of, you know, satisfaction, we had about 85% of people report that they were very satisfied with, with the program. So I think it's important to put it in context. This is a program that cost just about five dollars you know for people to receive messages for every three months thousands of people can subscribe simultaneously the amount of money involved per person is less than the amount of money the individual will pay for a parking ticket for one right. session with their psychologist right <laughs> and then if you look at the benefits in terms of reduction in you know depression symptom scores this really an intervention that every jurisdiction should have mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and just to, just explain because i've heard you explain this before because sometimes i always think and i've heard other people say this you know you get a text message that's based on cognitive behavioral therapy principles just maybe describe how it actually serves uh to how, how, it, how it works uh, to reduce depression. Just based yeah, so, on... I mean, when, when people are depressed, they often get what we call negative automatic thoughts. So these negative automatic thoughts may relate to themselves, the environment and the people around them, or it may relate to the future. So somebody who is depressed you know, maybe thinking how bad a person they are and that preoccupies their mind. They may be thinking that nothing good ever happens to them or the future is not ever going to get better. Or they may think that everybody around them actually hates them. So that's really the kind of thoughts that preoccupies their, their mind on a day-to-day -day basis. Similarly, if people are anxious, Mm -hmm. They are preoccupied with the worst case scenario. You know, it's more doom and gloom. So when you go to see your therapist, what your therapist does is try to instill hope and try to give you messages that will help you to counteract some of these negative automatic thoughts that you have when you are either anxious or depressed and may give you some assignments or tasks to do which will take your mind off the negative tasks or improve your ability to appraise things in a more positive way. So it's the same concept that we have with the supported text message in program. Rather than having a one-hour session where your therapist go through a lot of different concepts with you, these concepts have been broken down into small messages which are delivered to you day after day over several months. So, for example, if you have somebody who is depressed, is preoccupied with the doom and gloom, being a bad person, and then you receive today's text message, which, for example, you know, says there is only one day you need to worry about today. Yesterday is gone. Tomorrow will take care of itself focus your energy on today. It puts you right in the moment, okay? So it's able to disrupt that negative pattern of thinking momentarily, okay? So you may, on the first day, go back to that same pattern. But tomorrow, you're going to receive another message that's going to reinforce the message that you received the day before and also disrupt the negative pattern of thinking. So you can imagine that if you have this happen day after day, day after day, it gradually shifts your focus from the negativity to beginning to think more in the positive. And really that's how the supportive text message
program works mm-hmm. is based on purely cognitive behavioral therapy principles. Right. Thank you. Yeah. And so let's let's fast forward to. So you, you moved to Edmonton. Um, you take on a role as. What, what was your first role when you moved to Edmonton again? So section chief for community mental health. Right. And then you became section chief. Yeah. And then he became the director of of the division of community psychiatry, which which I was instrumental in in getting set up. Right, right. Okay. I I, I just I want to fa- keep the thread of the text messaging program going. So um, COVID happens in you know March 2020, and maybe talk about what you were thinking in terms of implementing another texting program at that time? Well, at the time before COVID happened, I was uh, focused on another program, the Text for Support program, which the Mental Health Foundation uh, generously offered us some funds Mm -hmm. to set up. And that program was set up not for the general public, but for addiction and mental health uh, patients those who were accessing our addiction and mental health programs in the zone. So the difference between the text for support and the text for uh, mood program was that the text for support program, uh, people do not self-subscribe. We put your number in the program. Uh, another difference is that uh, the text for support program has several uh, programs under it. So we have the text for support, depression program, anxiety program, general well-being program, psychosis program, uh, trauma program, addiction program. So really it allows people to receive messages which are specific Mm -hmm. to the problem for which they are presenting with. Also patients have a choice. So people are offered a choice because usually People have comorbid problems, you know, so you can be, for example, in both the anxiety program and the addiction program, mm-hmm. because you have uh, probably both 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 problems. So that's really was the focus of the work that was being done until the pandemic happened. And with the experience that we had with the text for mood and the wildfires, we knew immediately it would be a very useful tool because no government can be able to uh, have enough mental health therapists or counselors Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to deal with the magnitude of the psychological issues, you know, confronting people. So we, we thought it would be very, very useful to, to, to set up a separate program to, to deal with the stress that people were going through. And that's how come the text for hope program came into being. Yeah. And so you had 20,000 subscribers over the course of a year with uh, the Fort McMurray wildfires, which was one of the most unprecedented natural disasters in Alberta's history. And then with COVID and Text for Hope being launched, to just talk a little bit about the uptake uh, in the first week and then how many subscribers si- signed on over the, the course of the preceding months. Yeah, so I mean, with the Tech for Hope program, we're fortunate, as you're aware, to have our, our Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Dina Henshaw, uh, announce it as an Alberta Health Services program to uh, support Albertans during the time of the pandemic. So we saw the numbers just rise per minute mm-hmm. with the onset of, of that announcement. I think it was at the time you know, many people wanted to know a lot about the COVID, really not much was known. So people did pay particular attention to a daily uh, Mm -hmm. news briefings as well. So within the first week of of that announcement, we had, you know, over 32,000 people subscribe Mm -hmm. to the program. And in the course of the year, we we had over 53,000 people subscribe to the program. And uh, we've done evaluation we've so far published about 20 articles that speaks to the burden of the mental health 
problems as well as the impact of the text uh, message program. And, and why do you think, because I, I, in your previous text messaging programs, the participation rate was significantly lower. Obviously, there's a number of variables which made this um, significantly higher. What do you think, though, that says more generally about um, the public's willingness to utilize technology for mental health moving forward? Well, I think the willingness has always been there. It's the opportunity which has not. Because even with the Tech for Hope program, despite the announcements you know, from uh, a chief medical officer mm-hmm. as a psychiatrist sitting at an Access 24-7 clinic, day after day, I had to inform people about the program, mm-hmm. even up until you know, my very last few clinics before leaving Alberta. So people are not still aware of it. And uh, therefore, I think the willingness is, is just there, but uh, probably uh, the advertising and, 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 and communication you know, to people is really what has, what has been lacking. Mm. Uh, again, a major difference between the other programs, you know, for example, Text for Mood was designed and funded mostly for the North Zone. Mm-hmm. Not for the whole province, right? But, but Text for Hope is more of a provincial uh, program. So I mean, it would definitely be expected that the numbers should should, should be more. Yeah, and it's one of the most unprecedented health events of our time with COVID. Yeah. So fifty three thousand subscribers, which is an unbelievable. Regardless, yeah. um, talk a little bit about any other jurisdictions that either adopted the program or, or have, have reached out to you s- since the launch of Text for Hope? Yeah, so I mean, uh, in the course of uh, the pandemic, BC Provincial Health Services Authority Disaster Management Unit uh, did reach out. So we did sign an agreement with them uh, to run, to help them set up a pilot uh, initiative. So So that's a program that's are still ongoing and hopefully we'll, we'll be able to do some evaluation around. We also uh, received inquiries from Ontario. The, the inquiries came to our Better Health Services. I wasn't really a part of that discussion, as well as inquiries from uh, Saskatchewan. I'm aware subsequently uh, Saskatchewan has developed something similar, not, not exactly the same, but We've also received inquiries from as far away as Australia. We've received inquiries from uh, the U.S. and also received inquiries from Quebec and uh, definitely Ghana, my own country Mm. as well. There have been some inquiries as well. Well, first and foremost, I'll make sure to talk to the folks in Saskatchewan about stealing your program, Vincent. Don't don't worry about it. No, I don't think they stole it. <laughs> they some creative minds there. As yeah, well. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure they do. Um, so, do you do you foresee? Well, let, let me just go back to some of the findings from the the research. I was just reading an article about, and I think this was related to the text for hope research around. Um, individuals, people under 25 during the pandemic have experienced more stress and anxiety than older people have, which seems somewhat counterintuitive given the risk profile of COVID-19 on, on the elderly. Talk a little bit about, about that, those findings and what, what you make of that. Yeah, so I mean, we did publish uh, one of our studies is the most cited of our our COVID papers. I think we've received about 80 citations in the last year for for that particular paper that looked at gender distribution of the of the of the mental health burden. So yes, really, the key findings from that study was those less 25, age less than 25 years, you know, both the brunt of, of anxiety, depression, and stress from the pandemic. And, and these were least in those who were aged 60 years and over. And uh, as you said, it's a bit counterintuitive because you 
we all know that in terms of those who are dying from the pandemic, being hospitalized, ending up in ICU, it was mostly the elderly. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the disruption to people's lives, it's mostly the youth. They mm-hmm. had to leave school, you know, uh, those who are going to graduate from university couldn't find the usual jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, people who had jobs were laid off. In these most of these retail jobs and and jobs in in restaurants, you know, are done by youth and and students on on, on vacation or, or doing it at part time, even while they are going to school. So there was more disruption the life of the youth. In addition, the youth obviously had more to worry about in terms of what the future Mm, holds. You know, uh, those 60 years and above, many of them have retired and, uh, you know, living in in retirement homes or or really not needing to worry about where the next income is going to come from. There was no disruption to their pension. Right their pension plan, and so on and so forth. So there was more uncertainty impacting the youth compared to the elderly, which might have accounted for Mm -hmm. what we saw in terms of the increased burden of of mental health psychopathology in in the youth. So you're now the the big dog over there in uh, Halifax, and you are going to continue work with text messaging support and and email support as well. You've started your own not-for-profit organization, which I'd like to talk about a little bit. Um, maybe just give me the broad strokes on how you see the future of mental health care evolving and what you're going to be doing within that evolution to um, to help it uh, improve, and I presume it's going to continue to be around global mental health and digital mental health. Yeah, so I mean, very fortunate to have had the opportunity to be appointed department head at, at Dalhousie University. It's a very great institution, very old institution connected to European uh, traditions. And uh, I see this really as an opportunity to advance the global mental health uh, agenda. So I've already started discussion here about how we can be able to set up a center for global mental health, collaborating with institutions around the world. And definitely digital health is going to form a very big part of that. We would mm-hmm. never be able to train enough psychiatrists, you know, psychologists, mental health therapists, but we can be able to use technology and uh, the ability to use technology to scale and spread very vital mental health supports and information to actually close the psychological treatment gap. So I'm going to continue researching, evaluating, exploring avenues and opportunities to scale and spread the work that we've done already and uh, some new emerging programs and applications. And you reference the email uh, Uh application, for example, uh, in terms of the text messaging program, I mean, currently we're in the process of of, uh, applying for some big grants to do something in the elderly. We are calling it the Text for Healthy Aging. It's a specific opportunity, funding opportunity that's looking at the aged and uh, providing a means of support to help reduce isolation, loneliness, uh, to help increase connectedness, and also to help in- increase you know, the information flow mm-hmm. to, to these patients. It may be information, not necessarily mental health. It may be related to other physical health ailments, you know, like diabetes, high blood pressure, osteoarthritis, and so on and so forth. Things which are very important, you know, as, as, as people grow. So that's one way we are hoping to expand, you know, the text for hope uh, and, and text for support, text for mood 
initiatives into the agent. We're also looking at uh, another application, another grant called ASCAM. Uh, it's a transitions grant. Uh, and one of the areas the grant is focusing on is, is black youth. Mm. So uh, coming to Dalhousie University, uh, we find that you know black men women generally have a challenge with accessing mental health services. I think a lot could be due to the stigma mm. of, of, of mental health, which is very the same from, you know, in Africa as mm-hmm. well. So we, we can be able to actually use technology to improve mental health literacy of the black population, you know, because as you are aware, you know, text messaging, it's very confidential. Nobody even knows you signed up for any program right. or not. So we can be able to embed mental health literacy programs within the text message just that we build for that population. Hmm. So here in Nova Scotia, they do have, you know, uh, a new organization that's trying to improve access to mental health for for black uh, youth. They call them the brotherhood. And, uh, you know, so we can be able to work with the brotherhood, for example, to develop uh, you know, a bank of mental health literacy uh, messages that we can use to build a text for brotherhood program, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I believe the issues confronting black people in the Scotia is similar to issues confronting blacks in, in Toronto. Mm. In, in Montreal, you know, so we can be able to actually find partners in institutions in McGill University, University of Toronto, and scale and spread it nationally. So that's another grant call that I'm, I'm looking at to target a specific intervention for a specific population. The same grant call also has post-secondary institutions. So with that, I'm looking at you know, the email application, people who are transitioning from high school to university. So I have a meeting set up with the uh, director of the counseling unit here at Dow. I'm going to set up similar meetings with the, the director at the U of A and also St. Mary University here in Halifax and, and try and find a few others so that we can actually also apply for that grant to, mm-hmm. to build an email program of support and mental health literacy for high school students who've been admitted and are transitioning to university. Oh, so, I see. So the plan really going forward will be to work with institutions to develop programs that meet specific populations. Mm-hmm. Because if you're able to do this, you know, for the U of A or for Dalhousie University, the same thing could be done for African universities as well. And therefore, we can be able to scale and spread, you know, working in partnership with institutions to reach to reach the population. So with the email, is it CBT messages alongside mental health literacy type information? Absolutely, absolutely. It's a daily one-way transmission as well. Okay, okay. So, so, so there'll there'll be evaluations that are built into all of this. So, for example, the email application, you know, people can be able to do the evaluation, and then they would have access to their own scores on the various written skills and an interpretation and also suggestions about what they should do. For example, if somebody's scoring very high on, you know, the depression rating scale, then there'll be some advice, mm-hmm. you know, that, that'll be given to the person to contact maybe their family doctor for, you know, more clinical evaluation. No, oh, that's cool. Sorry, how often does that take place? The evaluation? Yeah, yeah, so that they can see. Yeah, so people would sign up when they sign up, they'll complete the evaluation. They'll complete again at six weeks of intervention and mental health literacy. And then at three months, six months, nine months, and one year, which will be the exit 
from the program. Uh, that's that's really interesting. Actually, the transitional piece is certainly <clears throat> needed for for young people at a high school, especially now with the pandemic. Talk last thing, then I'll let you go. Um, talk a little bit about the Global Psychological E Health Foundation and what you're hoping to achieve um, achieve with the foundation. Yeah. So I mean, uh, so. As you're aware, it always starts as, as, as research. But then there are some institutions or some things that you cannot necessarily... For example, the BC Provincial Health Services Authority reached out. They were not interested in research. They were interested in more kind of providing support for their people. So, I mean, mm-hmm. the funds that were provided, were, were, there was no research component right. it was right. it was really just a cost recovery mm-hmm. for the messages that they were going to be sent so so clearly we cannot always rely on research research is to be the initial catalyst that generates the evidence but in terms of ability to scale and spread you know to africa i mean we cannot go and talk to government of whatever that we want to come and do research right you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we, we can go to them and talk to them about, look, we have a great intervention that's got great evidence that we feel will be very helpful for your population. This is our evidence. Right. Then we can be able to, because we are not interested in in making a profit out of, of, of really this research evidence or, or this innovation. So we can be able to, use the Global Psychological eHealth Foundation to be the vehicle that talks to various provincial governments and uh, institutions about uh, implementing some of the products that we've been able to uh, come out with as a result of the research that, 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 that's been done. Yeah, so the well, Global Psychological eHealth Foundation will be more or less the implementing agent for the innovations that are coming out of the risk of the global mental health research group. Sorry, you just froze there for a little bit, but, um, yeah, just, yeah, I know it was frozen. It's connection yeah. was a bit unstable. I, 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 I would just say, um, I'm honored to be part of such an exciting initiative as a board member and, um, I know you got lots on the go, so I just say um, to wrap up, it's a pleasure to call you a friend and, and a colleague, and I'm so happy for you um, with your new role, even though selfishly I'm sad you, you've left Edmonton, but I know you're going to continue to do great things, and uh, I'm going to ride on your coattails all the way to the top, so uh, keep doing great things and keep uh, helping people, Dr. Agupong, and thanks for your time. Thank you very much, Mark. Yeah, really delighted to be a part of this and to have you as a friend. I'm sure we are not done. We have many different parts of the world that we have to go to with the work we are doing together. It's, it's, it's only just begun. It's only just begun. Okay, it's take care. It's started, absolutely. Take Thank care. You. We'll talk Bye-bye. soon.